the advice that you're giving about, you know, contemplating one of the four Brahma Viharas or something like that would be sort of a practical instruction for how to kind of get from the recurring thought or the, you know, obsessive idea or whatever it happens to be to, to kind of moving towards what it is that you're talking about. Thank, thank you. Okay. So, so maybe, maybe Colin to, to help me out here, um, maybe give me a particular scenario and thought wise, like, is it a thought about, uh, a particular person or something, a mistake that you made in the past, or you know, kind of give me an example. For an example, maybe something, uh, sort of a disagreement that you had at work that you, uh, where you felt you were treated unfairly or something like that, for example, or even okay. with a conversation with somebody else and it keeps coming up and you kind of dwell upon it. And, and then you notice that you're doing it as you're meditating. So you try to let it fall away and then it comes back and, and reasserts itself in that way. I don't know if that's a good enough example. That's, but, that's uh, perfect. No, that's great. That's great. So in a case like that, where the mind is obsessing about some social interaction that you had that was disagreeable in one way or another, or maybe it was, had some implications that, that um, is, is disturbing your mind. So you're trying to meditate and your mind keeps going back to this conversation. And uh, it, um, you'll notice that the mind has probably, um, uh, like, like you'll notice that the, that, obsessive quality that it keeps going back to the conversation is something that you recognize. It's not new and foreign to you. You've, you've seen your mind do this before. So, um, so you, you, you simply do your best to sort of let it go. You say, okay, there's this, there's this thought. Um, that's not really what I'm here for right now. My intention is to pay attention to my meditation object. And so you, you simply, um, one way to kind of cut to the chase with a thought like that is to turn your attention towards the, the act of thinking itself, right? So don't try to push the thought away, but just turn your attention towards the, the act of thinking itself and ask your mind, okay, so what are you gonna think next? Go ahead and give me your next thought. Come on, cough it up. Think, go ahead. So when you, when you, when you would kind of confront your mind directly like that and just ask it to think, you know, think your next thought it'll usually kind of get kind of mushy. <laughs> like it, the, the, the ability to kind of go on and on and on uh, requires you to not pay too close of attention to it. When you really look directly at your mind and anticipate, you sort of ask it, what are you going to think next? Or maybe what will it think next? What will it be its next thought? And then sort of look at it with, with anticipation, you know, with, with, uh, with bated breath as it were. Usually your mind won't have a whole lot to say, right? It's sort of like you've caught it out and now it's, it's mute. And just enjoy the silence. Just let the silence be there. You don't have to make the mind shut up. You just let it have it say. If it's really, really, you know, it really feels like it's important to think a particular thought, then it'll think it. And then you go, okay, I, I hear you. What else is there? You, know, you just kind of give the mind permission to think if it wants to think. You're not trying to fight it, but you're, you're not sort of letting it, slide underneath the radar, as it were. You want to really pay attention to what the mind's doing, if it's obsessive like that. So um, sooner or later, the mind will either lose energy or it'll just go mute. And when it does, just, very, just keep paying attention to the silence. And notice that in the silence, the body's still breathing. And just notice that the body's still breathing. Right? So you haven't like turned your shoulder away from the mind you're just paying attention to the silence that's right there. 
when you actually look directly at the mind and ask it what it's going to think next. And you can pay attention to the, to the breathing and you can pay attention to the tendency of the mind to mumble. And that is an exercise that helps you sort of see or catch the mind before it starts to drift away. So um, sooner or later, if you, if you persist with this, the mind's tendency to fly away will diminish and you'll get to a kind of a plateau of quietude in your meditation. You're following the breath, everything's going along very nicely. The mind's not flying away so much anymore. And you know, it might not be this session, but maybe next session or two sessions down the road, but sooner or later the mind will quiet down and you'll have this, what we call a nice meditation. Well, you wanna take advantage of that, right? And you, even if you don't have a nice meditation, you wanna dedicate part of the time to um, considering the tone of that mental activity that the mind keeps getting into, thinking about that conversation that you had. The tone is either gonna be one of something like indignation or uh, anger or upset or humiliation or fear or um, uh, puzzlement or something. It's going to have some quality that you could probably identify as being having its roots in either greed, hatred, or delusion. Right? So you try to try to identify the, the mental tone of it. And then based on that, you just um, pick something that you've heard of or you've tried before that acts as an antidote to that. And um, you know, the simplest one is often just the most direct one, just like um, if you're concerned about, uh, if you're angry at the other person, then um, think of something that doesn't make you angry. Like, again, I was, I'm using the example of, of, you know, small, innocent animals uh, is a good one because it's so, so available. Think of your, your cat or your, your kittens or puppies or babies, you know, something that doesn't provoke anger and just spend some time thinking about um, sending metta, uh, kind wishes towards that entity, towards that being, um, just as a way of kind of biasing the mind in the other direction. And then try sending that same sense of, of love and care towards somebody that you actually know, that you're not feeling that anger towards, right? So just, you're trying to expand the, the heart's range of its ability to feel a positive, wholesome attitude towards another being. And you may or may not get to the point where you can feel that same sense of positivity towards the, your, your uh, interlocutor in this conversation that your mind tends to obsess about. But you're, you're, you're teaching your mind another way of conducting itself. And this is what kind of gets your, helps you get your fingernails underneath the edge of this thing so that you can start to make, uh, you can start to make it be different. So uh, uh, that's a, maybe an example of, of how to proceed. So you, one of the things you have to do as a meditator is you have to uh, try different things. So um, sometimes for a lot of people, the formal phrases of metta or doing metta in a very formal way, following a guided metta meditation can be just the ticket. And other people, it just drives them up the wall, right? So you have to find out what works for you. Um, the, the theme is a wholesome theme of kindly regard towards other beings. So find a way to make that theme come to life in your own experience, in your own mind. Um, metta is a good one. Uh, karuna, which is compassion. So to, to bring up the idea of others suffering, you know, the suffering of, of other people, other beings, other animals, and wishing them well, wishing them compassion. May their, may their suffering be alleviated. 
That is also a wholesome train of thought. Um, so the, the Brahma Viharas are like that. You, you think about the Brahma Vihara, the quality that it represents, and then find a way to get your mind to take that theme and then run with it for a while. When you find the kind of tricks that work for your mind, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll educate yourself over time to know, um, like when the mind's getting into a certain unwholesome state, what's going to cure that state or what's going to kind of help uh, get the mind off that topic. Um, if, you have, if your mind is going towards greed, uh, oftentimes thinking, uh, taking up the themes of, uh, of aging, illness, and death, even though they don't sound like much fun, it can be the, just the right thing to get the mind up to drop a topic of greed. Or maybe it's obsessing about something which is really trivial, you know, uh, um, that it has to do with, with grasping. So um, maybe, uh, you know, there's a special condiment that you like to use in cooking and your mind is just sort of obsessing about this condiment because you can't, you're not finding it in the grocery stores and you're wondering whether you should order it online and you know, how expensive the shipping will be. So your mind is kind of like, kind of dwelling with triviality that has to do with grasping at getting things. So thinking about death, thinking about the, 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 the gravity of death, death is this aspect of life that the mind doesn't ordinarily like to think about, doesn't take up as a topic. But thinking about death, like, you know, um, everybody has to die. I have to die. I don't know when my death will come. I know that I will die, but I don't know when. I wonder if I'm using my time well. You, know? you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to make yourself morbid. You just think a few thoughts like that, just a few, you know, two minutes. And then see if the mind isn't a lot lighter about the thing that it's grasping at. So it's almost like you take a little bit of medicine in order to get the mind to let go of something. And sometimes the, um, taking a lot of that same medicine can produce a, a different effect that might be useful to you. Right? So um, more than one person is reputed to have gotten enlightened by contemplating death. Um, you know, really allowing that to enter into them and become uh, a fully acknowledged, fully understood reality. And then the trivialities, I mean, most of the things that our minds go on and on about don't really matter. And they don't. They don't matter in the face of death. Your death is the most significant thing about your life in a certain way. So if, if you really hold it up, then the mind's ability to let go of stuff becomes uh, very, very powerful. So that's what you're trying to do is teach your mind how to let go of stuff that doesn't matter or doesn't help. It's not, not wholesome, not taking you in the right direction, you know, leads to suffering. You want to let go of everything that leads to suffering which is about 99% of what your mind tends to do. So, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of a tall order. But when you start to do that, eventually um, the percentage changes. Your mind becomes more and more wholesome and more and more peaceable. Like when there's nothing important to think about, it doesn't really think, which is kind of cool when it happens. So you know, I hope that helps. Good question. Smita, on your iPhone, would you like to ask a question? You have to unmute yourself first. You yeah, are you there, Smita? If you want to unmute yourself and ask your question. I 
I'm afraid we can't hear you, Smita. If you are asking your question, we can't hear you right now. So sorry about that. So perhaps Lynn, you can ask, you can unmute and ask your question. Sure, maybe yes, Nita, if you want to try the chat channel, that, that might be another way of getting it. Yeah. But Lynn, please go ahead. Okay, um, you spoke about um, having a remedy, um, using remedy. Um, in order to calm the mind or to bring the mind to a more wholesome state. And also the, the um, option of distracting the mind as well. Very good, very good um, options. Um, I guess the question I want to ask is what about staying with, not so much the suffering, but if you're able to observe the suffering, because that, how will we know the suffering if we don't stay with it? And I guess the question that I had when I was listening to the talk there, it's um, understandable directing to more wholesome states because we're training it to, to lean that way. But how does one know when to direct and not automatically direct versus actually being with the suffering, seeing what's causing it, just um, allowing the sensations, the feelings to arise and, and noticing those. So how, how do we determine what the best steps are or, yeah, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, uh, our practice progresses in uh, it kind of progresses in in a kind of a jagged up, upward trend with with dips in, along the way. So it's not like a steady you know upward thing. It's like uh, some some days our mind is really bright and clear, and some days it's kind of dull and hopeless. Um, but we just keep practicing under under all those circumstances. When the, the, when the mind is um, training well, like so say you've, you've been meditating all weekend and your mind is really quiet and still, um, what, one of the things that you're trying to do in practice uh, is to pay attention to your mind, what it's doing, not just when you're sitting on the cushion, but ideally all the time. You know, sort of checking in on your mind, seeing what it's doing, seeing what, what kind of thoughts it's thinking, uh, seeing if it's getting obsessed with something unwholesome, uh, if, if you notice that, letting it go. And the more that you do this, the more you're, you're kind of on the right track. Because um, the, 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 the key element in successful practice is uh, developing and maintaining mindfulness for a relatively long period of time. The longer you do it, the more you'll see. Um, when you see that the mind is not getting obsessed with unwholesome things, you don't need to make it attend to wholesome things. Like you don't need to take the medicine if the illness isn't there, right? So um, if you're paying attention to your mind and you notice, okay, the mind is you know, simply processing information, it's thinking of what to say to this other person in this conversation. Um, now the conversation is over, so the mind is simply... Uh, attending to what I need to do next. It's thinking about email. It's doing this. It's doing that. So you're, you're able to sort of stay on top of what the mind is doing. When the mind gets touched by something unpleasant, you might notice the mind's reaction. You might notice that, that there's um, a tendency to grasp. And then you might say, well, I don't know if that's such a good idea. And you might let go. 
Or you might say, notice that you can't stop it from grasping, and it grasps and it suffers accordingly. So if it grasps and suffers accordingly and it starts getting obsessed, then maybe, okay, now it's time to take a little medicine. Maybe you need to, to, to bring up the antidote. But um, in general, you're, you're trying to just simply uh, uh, get to a place where you can observe the mind, watch what the mind is doing, and very, very sort of uninvasively steer it clear of, of things that are going to be troublesome for it, problematic. It doesn't have to be very dramatic. You know? it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like if you're, like you're here at the monastery, you're going through the food line, and uh, you know, you're, you, you've made a determination to... Uh, maybe cut down on the amount of food that you're eating. So then you come to the dessert table. You know, if you're watching your mind, you'll see the mind go, well, maybe, it, maybe this time I'll have a little bit of dessert because, you know, yesterday I skipped it. And you can sort of see the mind making a justification in order to get what it wants. Um, but if you're, if you're mindful of that, you can, you can also recognize in that tendency to grasp at the thing which is attractive to it. The mind is going down a pathway that's only going to lead to unsatisfactoriness. And when you, if you can recognize that, then it's quite easy to go, eh, maybe not, and just sort of turn away. And as soon as it's out of your visual field, um, the, the unpleasantness of having to resist just kind of drops away. And, and so you're sort of like on this, it's almost like you're on horseback. You know? And the horse pretty much knows where to go, where not to go, but every once in a while it gets attracted to something that... Like it shouldn't go there. So you just use the reins a little bit to kind of pull it away from that thing and you get it going in another direction. And then it just takes off and goes by itself. But you can't, you, your, your mind won't get to that place until you've trained it in um, consistently being able to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome in, in kind of formal practice setting. When you're, when you're able to do that, um, you know, more or less consistently in your practice, then you can start bringing it into your daily life and teach yourself how to drop the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome um, in more and more different settings. You know? So maybe you can't always do it, but you want to do it as much as possible. And the better you get at it, the more obvious it becomes that uh, there's plenty of times when you don't need to do a thing. You can just watch what happens. And you don't need to, you don't need to intervene. The mind almost automatically does what's right. And you can kind of relax. And uh, that's when you're being, that's actually you've developed the, the skill of mindfulness to know what's going on in the mind. You're doing chitta uh, nupasana. Uh, you're doing mindfulness of mind. You're knowing the mind when it's, when it's angry. You're knowing the mind when it's greedy. You're knowing the mind when it's wholesome, when it's concentrated. If you can know the mind in all these different states, then you're kind of getting towards the upper end of, of mature practice. And that's kind of where you're going. But you have to you always have to start where you are. Some days, you know, it's the best you can do is keep your mind from going crazy uh, too much. And other days, um, yeah, you're ready for the heights of practice. Uh, so this is what experience teaches you. You have to, you, you practice a lot. Practice every day. Practice week in and week out. Practice when you feel like practicing. Practice when you don't feel like practicing. Practice all the time. And that will teach you everything you need to know. So hope that helps. Thank you, Venerable. Well, Nami Bhante, uh, Sneeta here. Sorry, I couldn't unmute my phone because I had not allowed my camera and computer to allow it. Uh-huh. But um, And I'm sorry, I missed part of your earlier talk, but I'm asking questions because you said one sentence later in the talk 
about perception mm -hmm. and you said perception is something you can never change and it's how it is and that caught my mind because isn't it like you know ultimately your perception also is based on your own biases and mind training and if you do the mind training in a certain way then that will automatically alter your perceptions well to some extent so this is a good this is a, an important question um, and that's part of what I was hoping to illustrate with my story about the, the three magicians and the tiger. Did you hear my, my story about the three magicians and the tiger? So, Unfortunately not. So, so the, the, the story about the three magicians and the tiger is that these three magicians are going through the forest, they come across a pile of bones. And at first they don't recognize what they are. So the first magician works his magic and the bones assemble into a tiger skeleton. And so now they know what it was. It was a tiger, you know, but it's just bones. So there's, no, there's nothing sort of important or threatening or exciting about bones. They're just, you know, they're just bones. But the skeleton has more meaning. It's now it's at the level of, you could say, recognition, right? Recognize that there's an object out there. This is the, the eye door operating. That's, that's sense consciousness, right? The next thing that in Buddhism we call sanya gets translated as perception. Um, that's magician number two. He puts, he does a trick and he puts flesh and skin on the tiger. So now the tiger's filled out with its details, its implications. And so all the kind of the muscles and the sinews and the, the stripes of the tiger are there. And so now we've gone beyond merely knowing that there's, a, there's an animal to knowing that it's a tiger, right? And, it, and so the implications of tiger are built into that perception. So that's, in Buddhism, that's where perception stops, right? So the next thing that happens is the mind's reaction to that perception, right? And that's where your biases and all your conditioning and everything else starts to operate. Because so the, the tendency to think about, oh my God, what a beautiful tiger. I wish I could make it my pet or I wish I could make a statue out of it. Or holy smokes, it's the tiger. We better get out of here. And like any kind of reaction that the mind is having, um, of course, it rests upon the perception. You, know, you can't have the reaction without the perception. But it is, it is sort of, ex post facto, it comes after the perception has already occurred. And of course, these things feed back into each other. So as, as the, uh, this is the third magician. So the third magician gives the tiger life. And then the tiger eats the three magicians. So that's the, uh, that's the way the story ends. But the, the idea is that the thing is not really, the, the process, the mental process of perceiving the way we think of it in the West, the, the way that word is used in English, includes this mental reaction, the, the kind of the, the post-recognition, post-implications, uh, uh, nuances, details, uh, be, being able to label what it is. Uh, oh, it's, a, it's, it's not just a skeleton, it's a tiger skeleton. Oh, it's, and tigers have stripes and they're, they're strong and they're carnivores and there's a lot of other sort of facts that, that cluster around that recognition. But then it's like, if, if the mind's going to react with either greed or fear or delusion about that perception, that's the mind's generating mental objects, uh, uh, which we're using the term papancha. It's elaborating the basic perception and making something out of it. The making something out of it is bringing the tiger to life. And of course, when you make something out of that, you're, you know, there's, there's a chance that the tiger will eat you, uh, so to speak. Right, so that there's a that's that's where suffering is going to happen. It happens on account of the mind's elaboration of the raw recognition 
and uh, sort of basic reflexive mental processing that happens. So, for example, if I, I use the example also of saying a word or, you know, holding up a word. So if I hold up uh, any kind of a book that has words that you recognize, so here's a book, all right? So you maybe you recognize the words the Dhammapada, right? Uh, or maybe it's a completely foreign word, doesn't mean anything at all to you. But if, it, if it's something that you recognize, that the mind's already been sort of trained to recognize, then at the perception level, at first all you see is letters. Um, that's eye consciousness. Then the mind puts it together and goes, oh, it says the Dhammapada. That's, that again, it happens automatically. You don't have to tell your mind to process the words and make the, the phrase the Dhammapada. It happens all by itself. Just like if I say the uh, word, if I say a word, your mind will know what it means without you having to do anything. That's automatic. You don't have any control over that. So if I say the word giraffe, your mind generates a giraffe for you, right? You know what a giraffe is. And so, but if I say that, if I say a word in, uh, in uh, a foreign language that you don't recognize, uh, so I don't know. I don't know much in terms of foreign languages, but uh, uh, uh uh, oh, I, I can't think of anything. But so say I, I say a word in Pali that you don't recognize, um, or anybody else doesn't might not recognize uh, uh, Gilana. Um, it's just a, it's just noise. It doesn't mean anything. You recognize that it's a word, but it doesn't have any, it doesn't pop a giraffe into your head the way the word giraffe does, right? So the, the the mind operates at the levels at these three different levels in Buddhism, right? We don't, we don't necessarily recognize that in, in the Western world or, or in the English language. We're using the, the word perception to cover all that entire process of recognition, um, the, the trained ability to know what something is, and then the, the elaboration that comes afterwards. So the, the elaboration that comes afterwards is where our practice um, has, its most, has the most effect. Now, it's also true that... Um, if practice goes deep enough um, and the mind is still enough that even the, the aspect of um, recognizing what something is can, can sometimes go offline. And then there's just sort of raw sensory data coming in without the mind making anything out of it. But that's not, you can't live in the world that way. And that's not really what the point of Buddhism is. It's just a phenomenon that can sometimes happen in meditation. Uh, the, the, key the key practical truth is um, we hear a word, our mind recognizes what the word is. Those are the first two steps. We don't have any control over that. And even our practice typically won't have much effect on it. So if you practice for 10 years and you get your mind really still and really peaceful and you, get, you abandon all your unwholesome habits, when I say the word giraffe, you're still going to recognize the word. So, so that part of the mind stays the same. But your reaction to that word, so before maybe you think, oh, giraffes are so cool. I want a little giraffe statue for my, for my windowsill so I can look at it when I'm washing dishes, right? So your mind can kind of go off on this pancha just because you heard the word giraffe. Um, it can go into greed, it can go into aversion, it can go, and, and really any sensory contact can do that. So that, it's that papancha part that the mind can be trained to let go of. And that's a huge part of what our practice is about. So 
I hope that helps. Thank you. Because I'm more thinking about the, the phenomenon of perception lately uh, with all the, uh, you know, you might have heard about all the protests around Black Lives Matter and racism. And, and there is a lot of perception behind all those feelings of uh, people's negativity towards each other. And the mm -hmm. phenomenon of perception comes to my mind through that process and how that could be trained or untrained. And sure. uh, that's and it, where I was uh, asking that yeah. question from. Yes, and as you, as you can see from the, from the elaboration that I gave, that um, everything that's happening in the political sphere or the economic sphere or the, almost entirely the social sphere is mostly mental proliferation. The amount of sense contact that it takes to drive sense of that proliferation is kind of minimal. Um, but you know, if, if, if one group is, uh, or if an individual, and so everything that happens in Buddhism, everything that we teach about in Buddhism is at the individual level. We almost never talk about groups or collectives or conglomerations of people or people in general um, in terms of training, right? So we can talk about social phenomena like you know, riots or uh, uprisings or uh, spontaneous demonstrations. But um, the, what, what actually changes the world, what changes how things operate, is the individuals in those collectives, right? So collectives don't choose things. The individuals in the collectives choose things. So if they're choosing to abide with um, uh, hatred and dislike for another um, imaginary collective, then they're training their minds in an unwholesome way, and it's going to lead to unwholesome results necessarily it just it, there's no other way for it to work out it doesn't it doesn't lead to the wholesome by training in the unwholesome but the the perceptions are not perceptions in buddhism that's those are mental elaborations that come after sanya perception so just just as a kind of a, a minor technical way of slicing up um, how the mind works again what we're calling perception in english includes all those biases and beliefs and conditioning and the, the way that we react to the things that we're conditioned to react to. Um, those are mental proliferations that come after the contact. Um, but the contact itself and the ability to recognize something is automatic. So um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests uh, take a lot of mental activity to bring about. They don't happen because of just eye contact. 